If you would, take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We are going to read together beginning in verse 18. And we will read through verse 30. I did not give... Our team, a heads up, but they've given me a thumbs up. They were already on it. Praise the Lord. Grateful to God for you, brothers and sisters, up there. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. A more than appropriate text for any and all circumstances. When you arrive there, because this is the Word of God, and you are the people of God, and it is indeed the Lord's day on which Christ was raised from the dead. Would you please stand if you are able? I'll try to avoid saying Luke wrote as he was carried along by the Spirit. In this case, Paul wrote as he was carried along by the Spirit, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. 
And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And there's no way they have this verse on the screen because I just decided to read it. And unless they are prophets, I'm going to read the next verse. Don't worry about it, please. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I'm tempted to close in prayer. If you have been with us at First Baptist Powell lately, you know that we are in the middle of an expository sermon series through the book of Acts, and that is standard for us. We often select a book of the Bible. This has been going on for a long time, longer than my tenure here as pastor. Pastor Phil Jones practiced this approach to preaching for many, many years. We typically select a book and we walk through it verse by verse. We've been walking through Acts and fact, if you've been here, you might have even anticipated that we would be in Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 52 this morning. Well, surprise, we're going to take a brief hiatus from our typical sermon series today and over the next couple of weeks Let me explain. Today, we're going to spend time in a text that has proven to be one of the greatest sources of comfort to me throughout my life as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is entirely selfish of me, and I'm unashamed about it, because I think it will be a tremendous source of comfort to you who know and trust Jesus Christ It occurs, that is this text, occurs in what is arguably one of the densest and theologically wealthy chapters in all of Scripture, so I've got my work cut out for me. This text offers truths that have the capacity to fill our sails when we are going through seasons when we just don't have the strength to continue rowing. And so that's that's why we're here then. That's just today. Okay, this is, this is what you might call a one-off. It's a one-off sermon for selfish reasons. And then hopefully you're helped by, by my, my blessing this morning, spending time in this text. Over the next couple of weeks, uh, I will be away for a couple of reasons. My mother's turning 70. And because my mother's turning 70, we're having a birthday party for her in Texas. And I'm going to be there if the Lord wills. So I had planned to be away soon uh, for this birthday party. So uh, we'll be away in Texas to celebrate my mother's 70th birthday. And then perhaps if the Lord wills and is kind in this way, he may be kind in another way. But if he is kind in this way, it is our desire as a family. We had planned on doing some vacationing here in East Tennessee. So we're going to go to Texas and then come back and spend a little time doing some vacationing right here in East Tennessee. Um, So that's why over the next couple of weeks, you'll be receiving uh, the word of God through the instrument of other brothers. Uh, And then if the Lord wills, we will be right back in Acts. Acts 13, verse 13, here in a few weeks, okay? That's the plan. 
That's our plan. So that's just the roadmap for you to explain why we're doing what we're doing. With this behind us, let's briefly orient ourselves to the comforting truths of Romans 8. In particular, verses 26 to 30. That's really our text, okay? I read more than that because that's the context. You needed the context, but we're going to focus our time and attention on verses 26 through 30. Paul sets the context for us in verse 18. We read it, but please look with me at verse Verse 18, chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings, plural, of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is to say, the glory to be revealed to us isn't simply greater, it's so much greater that a comparison is just improper. It's that much greater. As believers in Christ, and even as fallen human beings living in a fallen world, we experience suffering and affliction, and that's the context out of which the Apostle Paul is writing these things. Well, the Christian message includes a promise that is rooted in, built upon the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and the promise is this, someday Jesus Christ will return to this earth in order to cleanse all of creation and raise us bodily from the dead ever to live and reign with Christ. That's the promise inherent in the gospel. And this then becomes the object for our hope throughout this life. As Paul says in chapter 8 verse 25, same context, right before our text, this is the promise for which we wait fulfillment. And we wait for this fulfillment patiently at times. We hope for the fulfillment of this promise in Christ. And we do this amid present suffering, you see? So this is the context. The life of the Christian is characterized in large part By suffering, affliction, vicissitudes, adversity, trials, tribulations, and so forth. We have other synonym we want to attach to that description. That's the life of the Christian. So then what, Paul says, because Christ has come, died, been raised, appeared, ascended, and promises to return, we wait patiently in hope for Christ to come back and finish what he started. That's the life of the follower of Christ, one of waiting with eager anticipation and hope, with patience by the power of the Spirit for Christ to consummate all things, to consummate the Father's plan when he returns. In our text, now we're going to get more specifically to our text, so you can jot this down if you're taking notes. In our text, Paul offers two reasons As we wait, two reasons we can experience comfort in this life. So we're not just waiting for the consummation. We actually can enjoy unceasing comfort throughout this life, characterized by suffering for two reasons. And Paul gives us those two reasons in the text. And by the way, these two reasons are true no matter what materializes. Circumstances do not jeopardize these truths, these reasons. 
They extend beyond any set of circumstances, have the capacity to buttress our comfort and our hope in Christ despite the storms of this life. And that's Romans 8, by the way. So if you're taking notes, you might even be able to guess this. What we're going to do is we're going to identify and explain the two reasons Paul offers us, the two reasons which serve as the cause for our experience of unwavering comfort in any circumstance. This is, this is a two-point sermon this morning. However, I will tell you, let the cat out of the bag a little bit here. Under the second point, we will ask and answer three questions. <laughs> After all, I still affirm the Trinity, okay? <laughs> so, two primary points. There will be various subpoints. Second, second point has three subpoints. We'll get to those. Younger worshipers, I want you to look for a couple of things this morning. Our children in the room, two items in the text. First of all, and parents, grandparents, please pay particular attention to these things for our younger worshipers. First, how does the Holy Spirit help in our weakness? How does the Holy Spirit help us in our weakness? According to Paul's words. Second, Paul says that God intends to make us more like someone. This may be a lob, but it's so important. So, so Paul says God intends to make us more like someone else. Who is that? Don't shout it out loud. Who is that person? In whose image we are becoming remade, becoming more like. Okay, so first, how does the Holy Spirit help us in our weakness? Second, second, God intends to make us more like someone. Well, who? Who is that someone? God is making us more like. All right? Well, let's begin by looking together at verses 26 and 27, and we will identify the first reason we can experience comfort in any circumstance. Here are these two verses. Again, I'll read them briefly. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But notice the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here's, here's the first primary point. The first primary reason we can experience comfort in any circumstance is because the Spirit prays for us according to God's goodwill. The Spirit prays for us, Christians, church. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, prays for us according to God's good will. Now, Paul begins with a weakness that we possess as Christians. So pay close attention to this, younger worshipers. This is all connected to that first question that I asked you. What is the weakness according to the Apostle Paul? Well, it's found in the second sentence of verse 26. We do not know what to pray for. We don't know how to pray. That's a comfort, by the way, for me sometimes. You ever bowed your head and you've known, you've sensed, you've been compelled, you need to pray, but you don't know what to pray? In that moment, you can be confident that the Spirit prays for you. That's good news. The Spirit intercedes on your behalf 
Even the Apostle Paul admits to not knowing what to pray for. Well, since we do not know what to pray for, the Spirit makes up for our weakness, our inadequacy, our deficiency by interceding for us, which is just another way of saying by praying for us. By offering requests to the Father on our behalf. And notice that he intercedes for us. This language is interesting in the English Standard Version. With groanings too deep for words. I had forgotten that the English Standard Version used this phrase and this description. You have a number of translations that are in your mind at times. Uh, depending on what translations you've used throughout your Christian life. The English Standard Version is the one I've used lately. I've used many others before and still spend time in others. But here, the English Standard Version opts for groanings too deep for words. I would, I would choose something like this. It's similar. Inexpressible groanings. In other words, groanings that aren't spoken. Uh, this is, I don't mean to chase a rabbit. I'm just going to I'm going to comment on a rabbit that's running by us. We're not going to chase it. Chase it another day, Pastor Tim, not today. And here's the rabbit. Some faithful followers of Jesus Christ interpret this to be a kind of allusion to praying in tongues. And there are, there are great, well-meaning brothers and sisters who believe this. I have, I have one primary problem with it. The text actually says the language that's used here is you don't hear it. It's not expressed. So the prayers aren't audible. I don't think this is praying in tongues, whatever that is, which is the rabbit that we're not chasing. It's gone already. When we do an exposition of 1 Corinthians, we'll get there, okay? But here, no, I don't think that's what this is. I think this is just a way of saying that it is indeed the Spirit who is praying for us inaudibly. That is, we don't hear it, but the Father does. The Father is aware. The Spirit intercedes with groanings. Now, Paul has already said that creation groans and that we groan inwardly. Here it's the Spirit offering inexpressible groanings on our behalf. And by the way, this language of groaning indicates that something is not the way it ought to be. You groan when something is wrong. And that's the case throughout Romans chapter 8. When creation groans, it groans on account of its, of its pain, as in the pains of childbirth. When we groan inwardly in Romans chapter 8, we groan on account of, of this existence being characterized by suffering as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Things are not the way they ought to be. When the Spirit groans inexpressibly on our behalf, praying for us, it indicates things are not the way they ought to be. We as Christians ought not be ashamed to admit that. The Word of God admits that. We can do that, of course, with great confidence, knowing that while things are not the way they ought to be, that will change someday. When Jesus Christ splits the clouds and returns bodily as he ascended bodily, according to Acts chapter 1. Now, what is absolutely clear, just to rehash this or maybe just highlight it again, accent it again, What's absolutely clear in this text is that the reason you and I can enjoy comfort amid any circumstance is because the Spirit is praying for us 
even when we do not know what or how to pray. And these prayers, did you notice this? These prayers are always according to the will of God. As Paul writes in verse 27, he who searches hearts, by the way, that's the Father. The Father searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So there's this connection and this communication between the Father and the Spirit through the Son on our behalf because the Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God. One of the blessings, by the way, of praying according to God's will is this. You always receive what you are praying for. And so what this means is every request the Spirit brings to the Father through the Son on our behalf receives a yes. Isn't that wonderful? Now, one could argue that there are no unanswered prayers. And I've heard this before. For the believer in Jesus Christ, there are no unanswered prayers. There are prayers that receive the answer, yes. There are prayers that receive the answer, no. And there are other prayers, perhaps, that receive the answer, eventually. Concerning the Spirit, however, there are no unanswered prayers in this respect. Every prayer receives the answer, yes. He prays in perfect consonance with God's will for us. And we're going to see that that will is eternally good. Eternally good through Christ Jesus. So in the Holy Spirit, you have an unceasing and indefatigable, how about that? As it comes out, I think. I probably should define that one. Not fatigued. Never fatigued. Never fatigued. Never tiring prayer warrior who always prays according to the will of the Father on your behalf. That's one of the reasons you can have comfort amid any circumstance. In this life, as you wait for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of your body when Jesus Christ returns Second, second reason we can experience comfort no matter the circumstances is because God works all things together for our eternal good in Christ. I'll say that again. Second reason we can experience comfort throughout this life no matter the circumstances is because God works all things together for our eternal good in Christ. Notice verse 28, which is a popular verse, one that many have memorized. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here we go, three points. You ready for this? I feel better now. We're going to divide this comfort, this particular comfort, into three questions that I think help us understand what Paul is saying, and you'll see them unfold even in the text. Three questions concerning what God is promising in Christ. First, for whom is this promise? This is a select group of people who receive the promise. I'll give you a hint, it's not for everyone. For whom is this promise? Second, what is the promise? What does it mean? I think it's often misunderstood. Easy to just glance over and assume. 
Let's ask the question of what it is. So for whom is the promise? What is the promise? And then third, why does God give the promise? Why does God give the promise? You might reframe that. What are the reasons for the promise? Or what's the reason for the promise? And we'll get to that. There's a theological reason that undergirds the promise that God is working all things together for our eternal good in Christ. And what is that reason? So for whom is the promise? What is the promise? Why does God give the promise? All right, let's begin with for whom is this promise? Promise, Paul tells us in verse 28 that this promise is for those who love God. Those who love God. And he further defines this group. I don't think this is another group. It's the same group. This group of those who love God are those who are called according to his purpose. That is to say that God is effectively calling certain people to himself. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. They love God through Christ by the power of the Spirit. These are the people for whom the promise is given. We, we could just describe this group of people as believers, Authentic followers of Jesus Christ. So friends, when you came in this morning, you, you may or may not have been a person who genuinely loved God. And I want to stop for just a moment and address that possibility. It may be that you came to church this morning and for any host of reasons or One of those reasons may be because indeed you do love God, you've been rescued by Christ, you trust in Christ, you've surrendered to Christ, you seek to live a life that brings glory to Christ. But it may be some other reason, and it may be that you came to church this morning and you don't authentically love God. You may not have been a person when you came in this morning who has heard the call of Christ to come and find rest. To find rest from your labors, to find rest in the sufficiency of Jesus, to recognize that you, like the rest of us in the room, are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior and that Christ has provided through his death and resurrection the salvation that meets your need and there is nothing else in life that can meet that need. That is the need to be forgiven and the need to be authentically transformed into what God intends for his people. You may not have been a person when you came in this morning who had chosen to reject your sinful inclination to embrace what is rebellious against God. You may not have been a person who had chosen to to rid yourself of that posture and embrace Jesus Christ, recognizing, of course, you're going to continue to sin, but you want to fight against your sin by the power of the Spirit. That may not have been who you are. Well, I want, to, I want to say to you, in the words of the Apostle Paul, actually, just a few chapters before this, what we believe as Christians is that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That language uh, that this promise is for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, we believe as Christians that we love God only because he has first loved us. That's why we love him. And so I would plead with you, you may have come in here this morning not having been taken by the love of God in Christ. Maybe you came in this morning not compelled by Christ's love. You don't have to leave in that same way. I would exhort you to recognize your need for Christ this morning. Consider what God has offered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Consider that God offers rescue to sinners like us. And transformation received through faith 
And if that's where you are, if you think perhaps you'd like to know more about this, or maybe even you've come to embrace Jesus Christ for the very first time, we would love to visit with you after the service. So be bold. Stick around a little bit with us, would you? And have a conversation about potentially what it means to trust in Jesus, to love him because he first loved you. And you can do that by walking out of one of these double doors, take a left, on the right-hand side out, there is that room I mentioned earlier called Crossroads. Go into that room. There will be an elder in there who would love to meet you and walk alongside of you and potentially you alongside of us as we learn to live a life of love, faith, and obedience to the God who first loved us, okay? So, Back to our questions, for whom is the promise given? Those who love God, those who are called, believers in Jesus Christ. Not everybody. Listen, church, we can't say justifiably, God will work everything out for your good to the person who does not love God in Christ. That is not what God's word offers them. What God's word offers them is come to Christ in repentance and faith. Come in God's mercy and become a part of God's family through faith in Christ on account of Christ. And then, here's the promise. God works everything together for your eternal good in Christ Jesus. Second, what is the promise? I do need to keep going here. What is the promise? God does not offer a kind of naive and blind utopianism here, okay? which claims something like everything and everyone is going to be okay in the end. This, is, this text does not represent belief that, you know, when God shuts one door, he will open up a more prosperous one for us, as if God was more interested in maximizing our temporary treasures than he is our eternal good. That's not the promise. No, this promise is the promise of the omnipotent God and the benevolent God who is committed to orchestrating all things, including suffering. Remember the context? Remember the context, Romans 8, 18? I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and that's the context. So this is the promise that God is committed to orchestrating all things, including suffering, for the eternal good of his people. Now, here's the tricky aspect of the promise that often gets neglected. God is the one who defines what is good. There have been times, even lately, when I have thought, this is not good, Father. And I'm reminded, it is not for me to define what is eternally good? What God orchestrates more properly for the eternal good of his people. In fact, the text actually defines what is the eternal good of God's people. I want you to notice verse 29. This is the definition of good. Your good as the Christian. What does it mean for God to work for your eternal good in all things, in any circumstance, no matter what? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. 
So God harnesses, and don't miss this, he harnesses all your prosperity and poverty. He harnesses all your health and sickness. He harnesses all your comfort and your pain, your life and your death to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. That is your eternal good. That's the promise. That's a glorious promise. That means that certainly I've got to take a path I really not, I'm not excited to take as a Christian. God, I, I don't want cancer. I don't. I wasn't made finally for cancer. God, I don't want death. I don't want to bury a loved one. I don't want to do that. I can't handle that amount of pain. At least it feels like it. I don't want to wrestle with the sin that so easily entangles me. Why the struggle, God? I I want to come to Jesus and I want to instantly be made perfect. I don't want to wrestle with the desires that I know displease you, God. I don't want to suffer. I want prosperity. I want comfort. I want ease. I want life. And in those moments, it is indeed promises like this that remind us those wants are the right ones. But the suffering and the pain and the loss, all temporary, not worth comparing, are merely the transitory and temporary avenue to get us to our eternal good in Christ Jesus, where there is no more cancer, no more sin, no more pain, no more death, no more loss, all restoration in Christ. That's the promise. This is why and this is how we endure with comfort no matter the circumstances. We endure because the day is coming when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 John 3. We see him as he is and we are like him. Finally. Finally. This is also why Jesus is described in verse 29 as the firstborn among many brothers. We've been brought into a family in which God is our Father in Christ by adding humanity to his deity has become our eldest faithful brother. We don't often think of Christ as our brother. But here he is, our brother. Hebrews 2, he's our brother as well in this eternal family. 
Okay, so that's, that's the promise, okay, to be specific. God identifies what good is, what is our eternal good, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And God is harnessing everything, everything, everything. No exceptions, okay? You don't have to know Greek to define all here. All things means all things. He's using it all to conform us to the image of Christ. Third, why does God give us this problem, promise rather, not problem, we've got the problem God provides a promise. Forgive the slip. <laughs> Got to enjoy those moments. Why does God give this promise? Uh, what's the theological reason or motivation in all of this that even helps support us? So the reason that undergirds the promise that God is causing all things to work together for our eternal good in Christ occurs in verses 29 and 30, and we're going to do an injustice to this. And one day, if the Lord wills, if he tarries, and I have the privilege of continuing to minister until that point. One day we'll preach through Romans, I hope, and uh, we'll cover this perhaps more extensively. Some of you just jotted that down maybe and you're, you're thinking I'm going to hold them accountable to that. <laughs> but let's, do, let's offer a quick treatment. Notice verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's nothing controversial about this. My tongue is planted firmly in my cheek. Um, this, is, this is a challenging passage in that it's been debated among many Christians all of church history, okay? But all I can do is offer to you what I think the text is saying. I want you to notice something. Notice that Paul speaks not of God knowing the actions of people beforehand. That's not what it says. It actually speaks of God foreknowing people beforehand. Particular people. So the language is those whom he foreknew, not that which he foreknew. This is why I, I just don't think great followers in Jesus Christ, great theologians actually, okay? So all I can do is, is tell you what I do believe God's word teaches, but... Others disagree. That's fine. I don't think that this text is teaching us that God looks down the passageway of time and foreknows the act of faith and then responds by a kind of act of predestination. It's, it's not that God foresees an act or an activity or faith. God foresees people. He foreknows people. That's what the text, I think, is saying. And to foreknow can mean to know something will happen, certainly to know beforehand. However, it's often used with reference to God's loving choice in Scripture. And, and the Greek word is, is often this as well. In fact, if you were to look up glosses, glosses are just common definitions of words. In, in the world of linguistics, that's just, that's common language. So it's these common uses and definitions of words. When you're working on another language, you learn these glosses, and when you're, especially when you're doing translating work. And so this word, prognosco, to know beforehand, that's one of the ways you can, you can gloss this word, you can define the word, but another way to define the word is to choose. It's one of the glosses. For example, Romans 11.2 Paul writes this, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now what does that mean? Whom he chose. You see? 
God has not rejected the people whom he's chosen. That's Israel in that text. Jeremiah 1 verse 5, a little more here. God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I what? Knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Staggering. One more example will suffice. There are others, and we don't have time to do this justice, but just a bit for you. And you can walk away here and say, I agree. You can walk away and say, I don't agree. That's okay. That's all right. Amos 3, verse 2. God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So this knowing in Scripture is more than just knowing about something. It's an intimate relationship with that person. Now, I'll give you an example, actually. Not to get too detailed, but Genesis 4, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. I don't have to define that for you, I don't think. This, this concept that is thoroughly Hebrew, thoroughly biblical, translates into the Greek New Testament of knowing someone represents an intimate knowledge of someone and even often concerning God as you attach this prefix before. So when God knows before, he chooses, he sets his love on someone, even perhaps before they existed. That's the idea here. So I take it, I take it. Now, when Paul speaks about those whom God foreknew, seems to me he is speaking about those upon whom God has sovereignly and graciously placed his love. And it's those whom God has chosen, those whom God has foreknown, that he has predestined, that is determined beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son. And then verse 30, we're going to run through this. Those whom he predestined, he also called Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want you to notice that everyone who is foreknown by God is predestined, called, justified, and eventually glorified. That is raised to incorruptibility with Christ when he returns. So as many have observed, this is an unbreakable chain. It's an unbreakable chain. When God sets his love on someone, what's the promise? God promises, I will. I will bring you into my presence and conform you to the image of my son. God's not in the business of losing track of those upon whom he places his love in Christ. And then the tense of the verbs, by the way, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified even, glorified. None of you are glorified, by the way. And I'm not either. On the one hand, but if we can say it this way, this is inadequate. In the mind of God, it says, good is done. Past tense. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. So the reason God sovereignly works all things 
together for our eternal good in Christ. This is that third question that we're answering here is because God has mercifully chosen us to be like Christ and will therefore bring about what he has chosen for us. God has mercifully chosen us to be like Christ and he will therefore bring about what he has chosen for us. So we've observed two reasons this is officially a close. I even closed my Bible to make sure. If you see it open again, you're in trouble. We'll try to keep it closed. We've observed two reasons. We can have comfort in any circumstance. These are the high primary points. First, because we know that the Spirit of God is praying for us according to God's good will. For that reason, we can experience comfort amid any circumstance. Second, because God is sovereignly working everything, all things together for our eternal good in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that eternal good is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Let's close with C.H. Spurgeon, shall we? C.H. Spurgeon once said these words, If God hath called thee, nothing can divide thee from his love. The wolf of famine cannot gnaw the bond. The fire of persecution cannot burn the link. The hammer of hell cannot break the chain. Old time cannot devour it with rust nor eternity dissolve it with all its ages. Oh, believe that thou art secure. Rest assured, the heart that called thee, Christian, beats with infinite love towards thee, a love undying that many waters cannot quench and that floods cannot drown. Sit thee down, rest in peace. Lift up thine eyes of hope and sing thy song with fond anticipation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we have had together in your word. Thank you for the promises therein. We pray, O God, that you would do precisely what you have promised. On the one hand, we ask according to your word that your spirit would continue to intercede for us as individual followers of Jesus Christ and for us as a church. And secondly, we request according to your word in accordance with your promise that you would conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, that you would orchestrate all things together for our eternal good. Do this, Father, and we will be play, pleased and satisfied to give you all glory and all honor. Through Christ we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.